0: open to James chapter 5, and we are going to try in the next several days to finish uh, our study here of this letter uh, from the pen of James. We've been sitting under this letter under the title, Living Up to Your Faith. And what that expresses is the idea that James rehearses again and again, as we've seen in the letter. You say you're a believer in Christ. You say you're a follower of the word of God. Now act like it in everything you do, in everything you say. Because James is writing to Jewish believers who all their lives had expressed their faith in God through observing the sacrifices and commandments and traditions of the law of Moses. And that regulated and guided every single aspect of their lives from birth to death. So James is telling them how to live as a follower of Jesus. And following Jesus is not like following Jewish code. It's like following somebody's example and their wise teachings. And James is saying, you're a follower of Jesus now. Here's how to live up to your faith in Him. Besides that, the only significant spiritual leaders that most of these Jewish believers had had before they embraced Jesus Christ, were the scribes and Pharisees. And as a class, the scribes and Pharisees were known for their hypocrisy. They would say one thing that they believed, but they would do another thing. Remember what Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees at the beginning of Matthew 23. Not a good chapter if you're a scribe or a Pharisee. Uh, Jesus says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, which means they were teachers of the law. He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. When Jesus says they preach, but they do not practice. He's using the same verb that James uses in James 1.22, where he warns us to be doers of the word, practicers of the word. We're practitioners of the scripture, not hearers only. And James is telling this scattered flock of church members, don't follow the examples you've had. When you hear the word, just obey the word in sincerity and truth. And later in chapter three, James warns those who would be the wise teachers in the church, You'd better live out what you teach. By your good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom, James 3.13. So no wonder, when everybody mentions the book of James, whenever somebody mentions the book of James, a lot of people say, oh, you know, James, that's a, that's a really practical book in the Bible. It's practical because James is telling believers who have no Christian tradition how to live out their faith in Christ not in the hypocrisy of their former religious leaders, but in the way that Jesus taught by acting in sincere and faithful obedience in their daily lives in a way that corresponds to what they say they believe. And that is why the book of James is not just a little practical book. It has incredible impact for us in every single day of our life. And I hope that those of you who have been sitting under the teaching of James Uh, even though it kind of beats us up every once in a while. I feel the same way. Imagine having to live with it all week, right? You just have to hear it one time on on the Lord's Day. Uh, But but that's what James does. He he just takes us right where we are and says, here's what you ought to be doing if you say you have faith. And James has shown us in many ways so far how to live up to our faith, how we're to honor God, how we're to love others. And we've been encouraged, I think, every time we read a portion of of this letter to, to say yes to God. Yes, teach me to follow after your example as James guides us. So as, as Mike just prayed, let's ask God uh, in our hearts to say uh, that we'll have the power, the energy, the yieldedness to say yes to God as we hear what James has to say. Because I'll venture to say that this portion we come to here in chapter 5, compared to everything else James says is likely the most difficult for you and me to follow. Not because we will struggle to obey this text, but because as modern-day Americans, we will struggle even to relate to this text. I think you'll see what I mean right away as we begin reading in verse 1. So let's read James chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1-2. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields with you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no be no. Your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under commendation. I should have had Josiah Sherrill read that for me instead, who did an amazing job reading Romans 16 this morning and all of those names. appreciate his ministry this morning. The central call in this text appears in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters until the coming of the Lord. That is the central idea in these 12 verses. Everything James says, starting in verse 1, leads up to that exhortation. And everything he says after that exhortation explains and qualifies it and admonishes us in some way to heed it. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The word until makes the coming of the Lord the climactic event at which all patience terminates. Everything we do in life as a believer in Christ is usque ad adventum, until the coming. And the prospect of that advent, the return of our Lord who saved us, ought to make us eager to meet Him. In 2 Timothy 4.8, the Apostle Paul speaks of believers who will receive the crown of righteousness as those who love His appearing. And he describes believers as those who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what our blessed hope is, Titus 2.13. Hebrews 9, 28 says that Jesus will return to rescue those who eagerly await his coming. Peter says in 2 Peter three twelve that when we consider the time of the end, we should be waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Hastening is a word that means to eagerly desire something, to urge it on. But this is possibly the first reason you and I might find it somewhat difficult to relate to what James is saying in this passage. Do you love his appearing? Do you love the idea of the Lord's return? Are you eager for it? I imagine if you're like most Christians living in a first world country where there is a high level of religious freedom combined with wealth, if you're honest with yourself, you would say, well, yes and no. Yes, because we believe what the Bible tells us and how wonderful it will be when the Lord returns. We we just can't really understand or comprehend it. We're fools when it comes to that. We don't know how good it is going to be. But no, because we really don't feel the sting and the pressure of this world like we should and long to be rid of it. We're not like Paul who said, you know, I'm, I'm sort of grappling with this idea. Is it better to remain here and serve you or to be with Christ, which would be far better? Paul had a lot of reasons why he would want to say, you know what, it seems like it's a lot better to leave this body and leave the suffering and leave the beatings and leave the trials and go to be with the Lord. That's not the way we think here. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. And we're like, okay, you know, that's easy. I mean, to be brutally honest, I wasn't really that impatient to begin with. Because we've never experienced the kind of life that James describes in the opening verses of this chapter, where we're being abused and taken advantage of on a daily basis with little or no freedoms, and we know it's wrong and we want so badly for the Lord to return and to put evil to rights and avenge His chosen ones and judge the wicked. We don't know that kind of life. We've never experienced, or many of us, most of us probably have never experienced That kind of suffering, the suffering of the prophets that he mentions in chapter 5, verse 10. In fact, truth be told, we've got it pretty easy right now. There are things we enjoy and experiences we're looking forward to. And if we knew Jesus were coming back today, frankly, some of us would feel a little disappointed that we didn't get to carry out all of our plans. Again, we're fools because we don't really understand how good it is going to be. But that is the way we think, if we're being honest with ourselves. But I might suggest this morning that if we are walking with the Lord and growing in the knowledge of Him, we ought to sense a growing unrest in our spirit, an unrest with the things of this world, and a growing longing to be with the Lord. And I think to the extent that we do not sense this eagerness it ought to be an indication of how attached we still are to the things of this world. Can I go so far even as to suggest that to struggle with impatience when it comes to the return of the Lord may even be a sign of spiritual maturity? In fact, when we look at it that way, we could say that the Lord's return is one of those areas in which impatience could be construed as a virtue. Nevertheless, James tells us to await the Lord's return patiently. Notice that he uses the verb, be patient, three times in verses seven and eight. And two of those times, he's instructing us to be patient. And then notice verses 10 and 11, I'll put those up on the screen. James refers to the patience of the prophets, and then he uses a similar word that's translated here, steadfast. Both words in context have the same idea. Under pressure, during an undisclosed time of waiting for something better to come, you persevere. You continue to trust and obey and to be faithful. That's what patience is. So James is telling us, await the Lord's return patiently. That's how I would title this section await the Lord's return patiently. As we grow to appreciate and long for and rejoice in the Lord's coming, we have to anticipate His coming in the right way. And that's what James is going to tell us in these 12 verses. This is what he wants us to understand. He helps us to know what it means to await the Lord's return patiently by focusing our attention on four aspects of patient waiting. We're not going to get through all four of them this morning. Big surprise to those of you who are normally here. Uh, But I want to give you all of them here at the outset, and then we'll take just the first one this morning. Aspect number one is this, patience and eschatological context. What is the context? It is the vindication of the suffering believer. That's what we see in verses one through six. And we'll focus on that for a little bit this morning. The second aspect is patience in divine illustration, by which I simply mean that God himself gives us this illustration of the patient farmer. And to the extent that we say, okay, I need to understand what that illustration is, it will inform our understanding about patience, Then there is patience in godly example. James holds out the testimonies of the prophets and of Job in verses 10 and 11. And finally, there's patience in practical living. James identifies at least two evidences that we are living patiently. One of them is in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. Do you ever grumble when you get impatient? Don't worry, we're not going there today, okay? We'll get there in a couple weeks. The other is in verse 12. Do not swear. And that's a very interesting charge that he gives at this point in the letter. And we'll look at that next week too, Lord willing. So let's turn our attention and our time remaining here to this very interesting, unique section in James's letter, patience in eschatological context, which is the vindication of the suffering believer. What we are going through on this earth as we feel the effects of the fall in the world, and especially as we feel ourselves the object of persecution for the name of Jesus, is all in the context of the soon return of the Lord to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. James says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We might translate this more literally, weep, Howling for the miseries upon you that are coming. There's a special emphasis in this section, and although I'm not going to point it out as we go through it, the the, the second person "you" and "your" it just bleeds throughout this text, and and the the writer James is is putting the emphasis here on right in their face. This judgment is coming upon you. The word "howling" describes an uncontrollable wailing of utter despair. It is the cry of someone who knows he is doomed with no hope and no escape. It's the same word and the same literary style that's used by the Old Testament prophets when they warn of judgment that is upcoming upon a city or a nation or a people. I could show you dozens of examples of this this morning, but for example, in Isaiah 13, Isaiah says, "'Wail, for the day of the Lord is near.'" As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Feeble, Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. And Jeremiah uses the same word. He says, Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. You know how they put ashes on their heads to show mourning? Uh, he says, Roll in ashes you lords of the flock. The, 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 these are the ones who were the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel who are not shepherding the flock the way God wants them to. They're wicked shepherds. And Jeremiah is denouncing them because he says, the day of your slaughter and dispersion have come. You shall fall like a choice vessel. Oftentimes in these, uh, cr- these uh, judgment pronouncements, the, the prophet speaks as if it's right now upon them. It might be years coming yet when God is going to judge this nation or this people group, but it's so certain that the prophet speaks of it as if it's happening right now. To call someone to wail in the face of looming destruction is a poignant way to tell someone their doom is certain. So certain, in fact, they should start weeping and wailing now. And this is exactly what James is doing here in verse 1. He's styling himself like an Old Testament prophet and pronouncing judgment upon a certain people group. Now, who is this people group that he's referring to as you rich who are on their way to judgment? Well, I think if you've Already been reading James or been uh, listening to this series, you remember that James doesn't really treat rich people very well in this letter unless we understand the fuller context. James says in chapter 1 that the rich man will be humiliated and pass away like a flower of the grass and he will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And this also, by the way, can be a reference to eschatological judgment. Another place the rich come up is in James chapter 2, where James rebukes the believers for fawning over rich people, right, when they come into the assembly and, and dishonoring the poor, saying to the rich, man, oh, you sit over here in the good seat, and the one who has the shabby clothes, you sit over here, I don't want to see you, you know, you, you get out of my sight. And and James is is telling them, you cannot be a respecter of persons. This is wrong. This is sin. And as part of the text, James reminds them, are not these rich ones that you're honoring? The ones that come in and you're like, here, sit here, have the good seat. Aren't these the same people who are oppressing you? The ones who are dragging you into court? The ones he says in the next verse that are blaspheming my name. Aren't these the same people? Remember them? So he really sticks it to them in that passage. And yet they're still fawning over them. Now keep in mind, James accuses the rich as a class of oppressing believers and dragging them into court. This will come in handy in a few minutes as we continue to look at verses one through six. Also remember that Jesus himself said a few things about rich people. He said, for instance, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And if you ever get the email that says the eye of the needle is a little gate, you know, the camel so to under, just ignore that. Okay, just delete that. It has nothing to do with, with truth or accuracy. Uh, it's the eye of a needle. Okay, that's the illustration. And it's, it's an impossibility. And, 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 the, and the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. And really, we talked about that last week. The only reason you and I are saved is because of the power of God. It is equally impossible for any of us to come to Christ. And in Jesus' parable, the seed that fell among thorns never develops because Jesus says it is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of the world. And Jesus told another parable in which a rich man went to hell while the poor man, Lazarus, went to Abraham's side. In another parable, it was a rich man who said, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones who died in the night. On the other hand, Less than 20 verses after Jesus said how impossible it was for a rich man to be saved, the camel and the eye of the needle, we find the story of Zacchaeus described as a rich man who repented and promised to make restitution with those he had swindled. And Jesus said, this day salvation has come to this house. And it was one of Jesus' disciples outside of the 12 who is described as a rich man in Matthew 27, 57, Joseph of Arimathea, who requests the body of Jesus and places Jesus in his own tomb. Not even the disciples were willing to identify with Jesus at that point, and Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, did. So at least we can see that it is not an automatic spiritual loss in the, Old, in the New Testament if you are a rich man. But far more often than not, rich people are regarded with much suspicion and criticism in the New Testament, just like Pharisees, just like tax collectors. And James is a perfect example of this. He never qualifies his use of rich or rich person, we could translate. He never says evil rich person. You notice that? He always in his letter just says rich and expects his readers to understand the context. So, who are these rich who are told to wail? Well, we have to understand that the economy in the first century is very different than our economy today. In fact, the the economy of most of the world, for most of world history, is different than what we know it of today. It doesn't function like the economy in modern America. In America today, there are very rich people, and there are very poor, poor people, and then there's the rest of us who are in the middle the middle class, we wouldn't call ourselves rich by the standards we know, but we can basically get what we want. We can afford a place to live. And most of us don't really know what it's like to be hungry unless we've got so much food to eat, we just get picky and we decide to skip a meal every once in a while. But in the time of the world history out of which the New Testament came, you can basically just erase the idea of a middle class. There were a very few, very rich people, and then there was everybody else. The rich people owned all of the resources, and they controlled all the government, and then there were those very poor who could be divided basically into three classes, those who worked from hand to mouth, those who were slaves, and those who had to beg. And because the rich were the ones who owned all the resources, they owned the land, they owned the equipment, they owned the animals, the houses, the barns, etc., everybody else, or most people, were working for them. And the poor class was allowed to keep from what they produced to support themselves and their families, but the rest of what they had was to be given to the rich person to continue to increase his riches. So the wealth generally flowed only in one direction, the direction of the rich people, and everyone else got barely enough to survive on. Now, there were plenty of exceptions to this rule, but basically, this was the case. This is the situation most people lived with, and you see this reflected in in James' letter here in verses one through six of chapter five. So you can see how easy it would be for rich people to hoard wealth, to keep the people working for them, in poverty, because of their greed. Those are the rich people who are described here in verses 1 through 6. Not those who have wealth, but those who misuse wealth. That's the class of people. Not the rich, but the unrighteous rich. They are rich with the world's resources because it's all they care about. They are not mindful of God. They are not, to say the least, laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. Rather, in the words of Paul in Romans 2, they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. In verses 2 through 6 of our text, we see the charges that are brought against these rich, wicked landowners that they will answer for, James says, in the time of judgment at the Lord's return. And the picture James paints here is spot on with what, how we know that rich people abused poor people in the first century. And it was easy for them to misuse their wealth and influence. So what are the charges against the rich landowners? I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Uh, first of all, James says they hoarded their wealth. They tried to gather as much of it as they could for themselves, and the result is that they will end up with nothing, James says. They are earthly, not eternal. They're earthly riches, not eternal riches. So if your goal is only to gather wealth, to amass things, not to know the God who is the source of all things, then you are pouring your life into something that will come to ruin just as you will, James says. And notice how the judgment highlights the temporal nature of riches as well as the life of the hoarder, the temporal life of the hoarder. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. That reminds us of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James speaks of the destruction of their wealth and clothing as if the judgment had already taken place. Where the translation says, your gold and silver have corroded, that's literally the word for rusted. And we know that gold and silver do not actually rust, but this is metaphorical. Just as rust takes over and consumes a substance, James says their corrosion will be evidence against them that all they did was gather wealth. All they did was gather things that were temporal. And he says, it will eat your flesh like fire. This is a picture of God's divine judgment in hell and later in the lake of fire which will be filled with those who use their time on earth to gather something that gives temporal satisfaction but never turns them to God for eternal salvation. And the charge is, you have laid up treasure in the last days. That doesn't mean they were saving for retirement. It means that temporal riches are the only thing they have saved up against the day when they will face God. Imagine coming before the throne of God and you do not have anything of the blood of Christ pleading for you. You only have to present to God all the things you amassed when you were living on the earth. And what they have treasured then will only lead them into divine judgment. They hoarded their wealth. They were fixated on it to the detriment of their eternal souls. The second charge is that they cheated their workers. Because he says in the next verse, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of Hosts. In other words, these rich landowners gave into the temptation that I already mentioned to flow all of the wealth upstream, and leave as little as possible for those working for them, who had no other choice than to hire themselves out. But God knows how they have cheated the innocent, hard-working laborers through their greed. So the wages or the wealth that they literally stole from those whom they owed it, are crying out against them as evidence of their wicked greed. Worse for them, far worse for them, knowing the God of the Scripture. The cries of the workers themselves are heard by the Lord of hosts. That is a frightening statement if you're in this class of people. Because the phrase, the Lord of hosts, is a powerful image of the Lord who commands the host of armies, of angels, and all of the powers of heaven at his disposal. And the Lord loves to vindicate and avenge the helpless and the needy. That's what we know about our God. He loves the helpless. He loves to vindicate them. And if you are picking on them, if you are behaving in a way that is oppressing them, and their cries reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Woe is you. Not only have they hoarded their wealth and cheated their workers, James says they have fattened their hearts. He says you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The image of fattening the heart is striking. Because the result of cheating others out of what they are owed in order to enrich themselves to buy luxurious things and to indulge their fleshly desires means that they are starving others to fatten themselves. Remember, the wealth flows in one direction. But the ironic and frightening thing is that they are fattening themselves for the kill. We know that expression, fattening him for the kill. They're fattening themselves for the kill. For they are the ones who will be slaughtered in the judgment. And finally, James says, they murdered the righteous. You have uh, condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James, remember, says in chapter 2, verse 6, I said, hold on to that idea. The rich are the ones oppressing you and dragging you into court. He reminds them of this when they're trying to fawn over them in chapter 2. And that may be part of the situation here when James says, you have condemned the righteous person. The court systems were also controlled by rich people and they were often rigged in favor of the landowners, not the workers. And we don't know whether James is speaking of an actual murder here, although the lower you were on the social scale, the less justice you would have if someone higher up wanted to take your life but probably what James is saying here is that by robbing the poor working class of the wages owed them and by hoarding all of the resources, they end up killing innocent people because it would not be uncommon, for instance, for people to starve to death in that situation if they were not properly cared for, provided for. James is saying most likely by your actions, the death of those workers, those working for you can be charged to your account. And he says, he does not resist you. That is, he's powerless to defend himself. The rich can have their wicked way with the righteous, and no one stands up against them. That's the situation that he paints here in verses one through six. Now, let's return to the big idea of these 12 verses. James is encouraging believers to await the Lord's return patiently how does his prophetic announcement of divine judgment instruct us about having patience for the Lord's return? Well, let's think about this for just a moment. Why does James include these six unique verses in his letter? They're unlike any other verses he writes in the whole letter. Do you think that he's hoping that the rich will read these words and repent of their sin and turn to Christ? Well, the divine words of God can certainly be used by the Spirit to bring conviction. But that is not the purpose of James writing these prophetic words of judgment. Remember, he's writing this letter to believers, not unbelievers. He's writing it to Jewish believers scattered abroad, James 1.1, scattered mainly because of persecution. So why would James write a prophetic announcement of judgment against the wicked landowners and deliver it to the believers? I think there's at least two reasons. First, the believers James is writing to are the very workers who are oppressed by these wicked landowners. Maybe not every single one of them, but enough of them where James is trying to encourage them. They are the ones working for these guys. These are the, they're the ones that are mowing their fields, as he mentions here. They have been forced from their homes by persecution in and around Jerusalem, remember? Forced to move with their families to somewhere else in the empire where they can find work. Naturally, many of them would have hired themselves out to work for these rich people who were mistreating them because they had to provide for their families, their wives, and their children. We know that the first issue James even brings up in the letter in chapter one, the first time he starts uh, giving them instruction is to count it all joy when they fall into various trials. This is a trial. And again, we know that James reminds them in chapter two, verse six, that the rich are those who are oppressing them and dragging them into court. And immediately after James makes this prophetic announcement uh, of judgment in verses one through six, the next words in verse seven are, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You be patient because of what's going on here in these verses one through six. Do you know why James makes this pronouncement against the wicked rich? He wants to remind the innocent, righteous believers that the Lord is one day going to set all wrongs to rights. He will judge the wicked, and he will exalt the righteous. What we see here, I think, in this text is a microcosm of the book of Revelation, at the end of which the apostle John begs, Come, Lord Jesus! James wants to strengthen the hearts of the Lord's people with the knowledge that their suffering is temporary, that justice will be served in the end. And he does not simply remind them that God's judgment is coming upon the wicked. He he does something uh, very powerful here by pronouncing judgment on the wicked. He's, He's letting us in on the fact that they are being judged He's he's giving the pronouncement as if from God. And it's encouraging to the hearts of the readers. I think there's one other reason, at least one other one, that James includes these verses in his letter, though. I think James also wants to remind the believers not to envy these rich people at all. Not to allow their own hearts to be drawn away to the riches of the world. He's showing them where a life invested in riches leads you. Again, back in chapter 2, where James says not to show favoritism to the rich, but to treat both poor and rich fairly, not to be a respecter of persons. We can surmise by this that James saw the tendency that these believers had to be influenced by wealth. Even though these guys were oppressing them, they they would fall all over themselves trying to give them the best seat in the house if they ever showed up in the assembly. It was our it was natural bent. And I think we're that way too sometimes. We get all tongue-tied when, when somebody there that is, is famous or, or, or maybe has a lot or somebody that we really look up to. It's a, it's a human thing. It's a natural thing. And he, he wants to warn them, don't be caught up in that world. And that is where I believe that we in the contemporary United States need to derive the most significant application from this text. I already suggested to you toward the beginning of the sermon that it's going to be hard for us to relate to much of this text because we don't suffer like these righteous whom he's writing to. So we may feel drawn to anticipate the Lord's return because we want to meet the Lord whom we love, but there is nothing for most of us really pushing us out of this life. There may be a draw, but there's not a push out. Because we actually have it pretty good. Well, do you want to know another reason that it's hard for us to relate to this text? Because when it comes to wealth and riches, we actually have more in common with the rich landowners in verses 1 through 6 than we do with the people James is writing to. Think about it. We have more common and more in common with the rich than we do with these poor, suffering believers not because we are wicked or misusing our resources, but because the wealth of the world flows in our direction. And compared to the rest of the world, we have most of it in the United States. We're a very unique audience for this text. If you make $60,000 a year or more, you are in the top 1% of global earners. That means, on average, out of 100 people in the world, if they grouped them together and you were one of them and you made $60,000 or more, you would be one out of 100. You would be at the top. And most of them would be under you, significantly under you. The average income for a person living in the United States is 71000 per year. And some of you might say, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. But it's because we have so many billionaires and millionaires. Most of them, the, 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 we have the lion's share of billionaires and millionaires in the United States. We have a lot of people making a lot of money. So that's at the high end of the global scale. We're up there with countries like Switzerland and Norway and Ireland and Denmark At the bottom of the scale are countries like Niger, where the annual income is $590. You heard me accurately. Or Sierra Leone, $500 annually. Or Somalia, $430. You say, well, their economy is different. No, no, no. This this is compared to the U.S. dollar. This this isn't our terms. Somalia, $430. I'm not even at the bottom if you have a net worth of $93,000, that is you take all your resources and you liquidate them, you take your savings account and everything, sell your house, get as much money as you can together, liquidate your assets. If it totals more than $93,000, you are wealthier than 90% of other people around the world. And over 102 million Americans, 102 million Americans would have over $93,000 if they liquidated their assets, according to last year's statistics. That's almost two-thirds of the American workforce. But let's say that once you liquidate your assets and pay off your debt and discover that your net worth is only about $4,250, which sounds a little more reasonable uh, to a lot of us, um, you are still richer than half the people on the planet. If you can come up with $4,250, half the people on the planet would not be able to come up with that much. Most of us say, you know, I don't feel wealthy, well, a fish doesn't feel wet either, which is to say that we are so used to a particular level of living, we don't realize how good we actually have it. It only takes a visit to a third world or developing country to make us realize that. Carlos and Gabby most recently understands, they understand exactly what I'm talking about. What does all of this mean? Does it mean we're evil for living in a rich country? Do we need to be woke about this? Absolutely not. In fact, God has actually blessed the world by allowing a certain standard of wealth among people in the world who are also very generous. We have a lot of generous people in our country. And we've enriched the rest of the world in a lot of ways but it ought to be a warning to us. When we are surrounded by wealth, we can so easily fill our time with toys and experiences and vacations and pastimes. When we have the luxury of being able to, we we, we we could take a day off if we wanted to. We could take a week off if we wanted to. Some of us might be able to just quit work if we knew we had our job back. We could quit work maybe for a year and we'd still survive. We'd be hardly any worse off than, than, than most of the people in the world. We live in relative comfort. It's very easy for us to be distracted in this kind of world with the deceitfulness of all the things we have. How much time and attention and energy and wealth do we expend on our walk with the Lord compared to how much time and attention and energy and wealth we expend doing other things, unnecessary things, things that won't last for a microsecond, when Jesus returns? Or do we plan our lives around our walk with the Lord and our service for Him as we await His coming? Do we ever struggle with impatience at the thought of the Lord's return? Are we eager for His return? If not, it may be that you need to confess to the Lord your lack of love for Him and begin following Him more closely, seeking Him daily, coming better to know Him through His Word. And while doing this, ask the Lord to create a longing in you for Jesus Christ, to desire His coming. But a lack of eagerness for the Lord's return may also mean that you need to confess too much love for the world for its things, for its wealth, for its entertainment, for its distractions and its pleasures. These lesser loves have we have taking over our lives so that we have no time left for the greatest love. And that's not how we should live if we truly desire the Lord. We can certainly enjoy God's blessings, and we can use our wealth wisely, and we can enjoy the good things that God has given to us. He wants us to. He's blessed us for a reason but our focus needs to be where we say it is. And only when that happens will we learn what it means to await the Lord's return patiently. And we will understand even more what it means to live up to our faith. Father, we're grateful.